Today I'm joined by Jason Romero. Jason is a highly sought after keynote speaker for conventions, conferences, and commencements. A U.S. Paralympian who was fourth in the world at the Paralympic World Marathon Championships in 2015, a holder of 13 world records in ultra running, the subject of a full-length documentary, and an author of two books. In addition, Jason has been an attorney, an executive at GE, and a CEO of a nonprofit that helps children with autism. Welcome to the show, Jason. Uh, thanks for having me, Naomi. I appreciate it. As people can probably guess from your biography, you've had quite the career and quite the life. Maybe we can start from the beginning. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how your your journey got started, maybe by starting with some of the news that you received when you were younger about your vision? First and foremost, foundationally, as raised by my mom um, with one brother and basically raised by a single mom. And that's kind of where a lot of who I am started with is my mother and the strength and the work ethic that she demonstrated modeled for me. When I was 14, I got some interesting news that kind of set in motion some things that would affect me for the rest of my life. I had went to my local school screening and every year uh, the school nurse did a vision and a hearing screening and I happened to go in and apparently I couldn't read the eye chart as good as I should have been able to. I thought I read it just fine, but she told me I need to go get glasses and I went to the local um, optician to try to get fitted for glasses. They couldn't figure it out. That led to a series and myriad of tests with different specialists until I found myself uh, in a small uh, room with a retina specialist who eventually delivered to me some uh, fairly significant news, which was he told me that I was going blind. And he explained that I had retinitis pigmentosa, explained how the the disease would cause my eyesight to degenerate over time. And he said, I'd lose my peripheral eyesight from the outside in, end up with tunnel vision. And that would shrink down and possibly, you know, close out at some point in time. He also said another symptom was night blindness, which I was experiencing significantly at that time. And after telling me about this condition that I had, he he went on to ask me what I wanted to do with my life. And I was raised by a single mom. Nobody had gone to college. My mom told me and my brother were going to college and graduate school. We're going to do something with our lives. And so I confidently told this retina specialist, I'm going to be a doctor, a lawyer, to which he responded that I should not consider that as a, as viable options, uh, that I would probably have no eyesight by the time I was 30. So like 15, 16 years. And I needed to learn to do something with my hands. And he told me point blank, you know, most blind people don't work. And that, that was how the news was delivered to me that I was going blind, which was a bit shocking. Uh, not the best bedside, as I'm 53 years old now, looking back at it, you know, I, I have some different thoughts about that. But the fact is, um, you know, I, I, I got the news. And what I learned at that point, which was actually really nice and, and really good, was that I was different. And I firmly believe that we're all different. I believe every single person who's walking around on this earth has a difference. Sometimes it's easy to see, like I walk around with a cane now so people can tell I got something going on. Sometimes there's a hearing impairment. Sometimes there's a there's dyslexia, there's hidden disabilities, there's 
emotional struggles. There's there's just a variety of different things that everybody has we're going on with, dealing with. But that was the beginning of my journey to understand that, you know, throughout my life, I was going to need to learn how to adapt in order to to move on and and accomplish things that I wanted to accomplish in life. And it certainly seems like you've adapted in many different ways over the years. I guess from there, even though, you know, the doctor said, do something with your hands, don't even bother with going to school. I got the impression that you did not pay attention to that advice. Yeah. So I was 14 years old. And as soon as I found out I was different, I couldn't see like everybody else. A lot of things snapped into place and made sense. I'm a fairly social uh, guy. And when I was in school, I was, I would always sit in the back row and I was the joker and I could never see the chalk. It was a chalkboard my day, not a whiteboard like these days, but I could never see what the teacher was writing on there. And I didn't understand how other people were getting information. I just, I, I thought everybody saw like me, like we just couldn't see what was going on. It was silly to even have a chalkboard because nobody could see what was on it. And when this eye doctor told me that I had some, something different going on in my eyes, I was like, uh-huh. So yeah, I, I was like, well, I got to figure out how to get this information. So I, I moved up to the front row. That didn't work. My stepfather, at the time my mom had remarried, and uh, he had told me, he's like, hey, why don't we go to like Walgreens and get some half-glass readers? And uh, we did go to Walgreens and I got some half-glass readers and I started wearing those around. And I always make the joke when I'm telling this story that, you know, now I got some gray, you know, maybe they make me look kind of distinguished now. But at age 14, when I'm walking around school with these things, yeah, you know, I, I got teas, you know, I got, they were called granny glasses, librarian glasses. And I always make the excuse that that was the reason why I couldn't get a date for homecoming uh, was glasses, <laughs> not not my charming personality. But, uh, you know, it, it, it was something to work with and work around. And it really did teach me that when there is an adversity, we need to adapt in order to go on and to, to accomplish or to achieve. And it's been a lifetime journey for me to be able to do that. You know, just some some interesting stories about <laughs> differences. Before I got this news, I remember being in English class. And, you know, from time to time, the teacher would always tell everybody, you know, take out your books and, you know, we're going to read for 30 minutes. And I remembered, like, I would always take out my book and I'd start reading. But after like two, three minutes, my eyes would fatigue, strain and everything got blurry and I couldn't see what was on the page. And I, I thought that's how everybody was impacted. And, you know, after 20 minutes, I wasn't seeing anything. It was just like, I, I couldn't see anything on the page, but I saw everybody around me, they were flipping the pages and I would flip the pages too, to pretend like I was reading. I thought everybody was faking and I was just going along with it. And after I received the news, I realized I was like, oh, I get it now. Like I'm different. I, I don't I'm not seeing like these guys. So that was a catalyst for me to understand uh, I need to figure some things out. And I and I did, you know, um, the strategies I had at that time, there wasn't a lot of technology like there is now back when I was a kid. And what I ended up using was more lighting, like a lot of lamps, a lot of magnification. There were some large print books at the time. There weren't computers in the classroom or laptops or that, you know, that type of thing. But I, I ended up learning how to adapt and innovate in order to be able to continue on. And you know, one of the one of the things I realized back then, which I hear a lot now from people with disabilities, is you know, if you have a difference or disability, you can do anything. 
that anybody else can do. We just do it differently. Mm-hmm. And that was, I, you know, before I even had ever heard that, and I firmly believe in that, uh, I was experiencing that. And that's what I realized. Sometimes what it meant, though, in order to accomplish what I was trying to accomplish or what somebody else was trying to accomplish, I had to work harder. And that was no problem. I was taught, like I mentioned, I was raised by my mom who had, you know, just an incredible work ethic. Like I, it's what my mom did and how she raised us and was able to move us forward was absolutely incredible. And I was taught work ethic from my mom. So I had no problem, you know, putting in the hours, staying up, you know, late at night, going over the same book chapter time and time and time again, until I was able to obtain the content or let my, you know, using my eyes, letting them rest, using my eyes, letting them rest, implementing additional adaptations and trying to be creative in this, because at the end of the day, the point was to try to get through school and, uh, you know, whatever I had to do to, to get through, I was going to, I was going to get through. And I eventually did. It was a great lesson for me and something that I carried on later on in, in my professional career, athletic careers, my, you know, my pursuits, being a father, just anything I do in life, it really has shaped me for the better. I think the two biggest things I I take away from that story is you come time and time again back to the work ethic and that ethic that your mom taught you or showed you by, you know, taking care of you and how that carried you through the difficulty that maybe other people in your school weren't experiencing. And the other piece around it, I think that was important for for us to think about is the fact that, you know, you just did what you needed to do. You found creative solutions, you found your half glasses and, you know, you would read and take breaks and develop your own techniques for, for getting through even before maybe, you know, nowadays you, you have a white cane. I'm not sure if you've ever had, you know, more official instruction, but all it is to say is there's, there's that resilience of, you know, okay, I, this is my situation, but we're going to put our heads together and figure out how to make it work for me. You know, it, I'm going to do what everybody else is doing. Just like you said, it's just going to look a little different. And you know, you mentioned work ethic at the very beginning. And I think that's the key factor in a lot of this. And a lot of times when we do confront adversity, it, it boils back down to work ethic. Sometimes that could be described as perseverance or determination fortitude, you know, pick your word, but at the end of the day, it's not giving up or giving in and continue to move forward and, and onward. And, you know, that's, that's been a, definitely a continual theme in my life. There's times too, when, uh, you know, the, the pity party starts and I'm not immune from that. I've had that, definitely had that in my life. There've been times when my adaptations were not success because when you try to implement adaptations or come up with a creative solution, you don't succeed. Sometimes if you get really lucky, you succeed the first time, but most of the time you go through a variety of different iterations of, you know, an attempt to try to adapt. And then that adaptation, you know, hits maybe 70% of the mark, but you need 85% to be able to succeed. So it's actually a failure in an adaptation. You go back to the drawing boards, modify that adaptation, bring, you know, adaptation version 2.0 to the table. And sometimes you go around, you know, and fail a bunch of times trying to adapt. And it may be 20, 20 go arounds until you find something that works. And then your eyesight changes and you're all over, starting all over again. 
but that you know you, you mentioned a, a key word in this which was failure and that's definitely a piece of my life is failure and i've learned so much more from failure than when you know i i'm able to succeed and and adapt and achieve something one of my buddies this past weekend was trying to run the leadville 100 a 100 mile mountain trail race at 10,000 feet above elevation and he didn't make it and there's a lot of learning and a lot of processing that's taken place and you know my comment because i've failed at that same race <laughs> and i've also succeeded later on but my comment to my buddy was we learn more from summits never achieved and i've found that i have learned more from my failures than i ever had from you know when i actually accomplished things like when I've failed or I've had struggle or adversity, I learn more about myself. I grow a lot more when I'm in a position of discomfort or pain or struggle than I do when things are hunky-dory and I'm in a comfortable situation. And I think that's a big uh, metaphor for life because, you know, with what I've experienced, even just like with living with a disability, we learn more when we're in a state of discomfort, when we're in a state of struggle than we do when everything is is hunky-dory and i'm all about growth i believe you know we get one life we go around one time and life is supposed to be you know a miraculous wonderfully brilliantly lived you know uh, celebration of you know awareness you know consciousness you know whatever loving giving and the way that i've found to actually truly celebrate on a daily basis is to continually challenge myself or put myself in a position of discomfort and it gets old sometimes i'm not going to kid you and i'm not you know superman or something that never has my down days because i do have down days i uh, struggle with depression i went through a major depressive episode about 10 years ago when i ended up stopping driving i was divorced three children unemployed and it was bad it was it was very bad i found ways to cope with that manage that my eyesight continues to deteriorate over this last year. Uh, I've been working hard to manage that depression. The, the work ethic, like you mentioned before, you know, I've, I've learned the strategies, the techniques that I needed to, to use and implement in order to continue moving forward and working through situations of adversity and struggle. And you know, that's what I do. And I, I will not give up or give in. And that I attribute to my mom. Your mom sounds like an incredible woman. Uh, on the racing circuit, everybody knows her as Mama Cindy. She's like five <laughs> foot tall and barely eclipses a hundred pounds. And she, you know, she is a mountain. When, uh, you know, she's like one of those people when she springs into action, she turns, you know, she looks like this, you know, 76 year old, you know, hundred pound little lady. And when she springs into action, a racer starts doing her thing. She turns into like this 10 foot giant that everybody's just like, whatever you say, Mama Cindy. Yeah, <laughs> it's, 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 it's been really cool. That's amazing. I, I didn't realize that she was still along for the ride in your, in your running career. So she comes to participate or, or cheer you and the rest of the folks on as well. Yeah, she's uh, so in, in longer distance races, which is kind of what I've gravitated towards, kind of like 100 miles and longer. You usually have a crew, which helps you. And sometimes those will be pacers or guide runners. 
Sometimes there will be people like you may have a nurse on your crew and you always have a crew chief, somebody who's like the leader of all your supplies and the people that are, you know, helping you as you're running across a desert or across a mountain range or multi days or whatever. And my mom has served as my crew chief for every run that I've done. And, uh, you know, we've been in some really interesting environments. Like, you know, we've been in Death Valley in July, with like 130 degrees, or like I mentioned, this Leadville race, mountains crossing, you know, running across Puerto Rico or running across Greece or across the US. And she's just learned how to crew in races, in self-support adventures, in expeditions. And she really is incredible. I mean, we, we've been around some of the greatest runners on this earth in some of the most extreme conditions. And it's been amazing because my mom has gleaned different techniques that other runners have used or other crews have used to try to help their runner when they get in situations of difficulty. And then she implements those things with me because after like about 12 hours of running, I'm not thinking straight. I'm not making decisions. And I rely on my crew chief or on my mom to basically you know, put those suggestions and solutions forward. And then we work together to keep me moving forward to try to get to that finish line. Yeah, I I guess I, I want to take a bit of a step back. It's It's been very interesting to hear about, well, of course, you know, running is more than just putting on your shoes and going out the door, especially if you're running at the professional level. But can you tell us a little bit more about how did you get started with running in the first place? What motivated you to to take it up and go all the way to, you know, running running across the world, across the States. There was a real formidable experience that happened to me when I was a teenager. And I mentioned that my mom had gotten remarried to my stepfather's friend. He passed away quite a bit of time ago, but he had a brother named Ted Epstein. And my uncle Ted was a lawyer. My stepfather was a lawyer too. But my uncle Ted, he got to be like about 50 and he figured, you know, being he'd had enough being a lawyer and he was going to stop being a lawyer, he was going to become an artist and start doing endurance athletics. Wow. And the whole family looked at him like, okay, Ted, you know, you're kind of like, you know, what do they say? Curl your hair and brush your teeth, you know, cuckoo. <laughs> and uncle Ted's, you know, whatever. And he went, he, he made tremendous art. And then he started doing this like endurance stuff. Like, you know, he was like training for some something he was going to do in Antarctica. So we lived in Colorado. He would go to this meat locker in a small town where they, you know, they had cattle and they'd slaughter the cattle and they put the sides of beef in this like freezer. And he would go in there and he'd run in place or climb ladders for like eight, 10 hours a day. And everybody's wow. like, what is this guy doing? Like he's wacko cracko. Well, turned out one day, Uncle Ted had a... a was born and raised in Denver and Boulder's not too far away, but uncle Ted had a race up in Boulder. So my stepfather said, Hey, you know, kids, you know, to my mom and me and my brother, Hey, we're going to go, you know, up to Boulder and see my brother. He's in a race. And we're like, Oh, cool. You know, I, I figure it was going to be like the, you know, the hundred meter limp, you know, the geriatric Olympics and everybody with their walker is kind of like, you know, a bunch of blue hairs, like, you know, going down the track. Well, we get to the CU field house, pull up in the parking lot. There's no cars there. Like, what is going on? 
my mom and my stepfather walk us inside of the CU field house. No lights are on, no bleachers are pulled. There's no noise, no concessions. I'm like, what is going on? Like, are we at the wrong place? And then we get further on the inside of this and there's an eighth mile track on the inside of the CU field house. And uh, off in the distance, like, you know, I can't see good in the dark, but I could see with the light coming in, there was a silhouette of what appeared to be a, a human and it was moving real slowly like around a track, we got closer. I'm like, what is going on? So my stepfather, my mom explained that my uncle Ted was staging his own six day race to try to see how far he could go in six days. And this was the sixth day. He'd been going around this eight mile track for six days. He would go for eight hours and he had a tent pitched in the infield of the thing. And then he would sleep for an hour. Then he'd get up and go another eight hours and sleep an hour and it was like it was unbelievable we got there and my uncle ted he's probably like six one or maybe six two and you know tall skinny guy i'm five eight on a good day but at this point we encountered uncle ted he was slunched over like him and i were the same height he couldn't stand he couldn't even like talk he's like oh. you know and i was like what is going on and i got on the track with uncle ted and he was shuffling like he was trying to run like a very very slow jog i was walking as quick as uncle ted was running and <clears throat> i just went around and around with the guy i remember and i was blown away he had a little table there with his like little food and water and then there was a bath I, like my mind was blown and he had all these different shoes because his feet had swollen up he had size 15 shoes and that wasn't what he normally wore i mean i'd never seen a shoe so big hmm. and Uncle Ted ended up going like over 300 miles in that venture. But I remember, you know, after a while, my stepdad, my mom, my brother, they all got sick of it. They're like, okay, like we're bored with this spec. I could have I just went around and around with Uncle Ted forever. And that blew me away because what I realized in that instant was that we are all capable of the extraordinary because Uncle Ted was nothing extraordinary from an outside perspective but obviously there was something extremely extraordinary within him to do what uh he he did and to give you a little more flavor about my uncle ted so that was my first you know encounter with this uncle ted ended up swimming around manhattan island um he was the first person to swim across the bering strait that's from wow. like Alaska to Russia where, you know, like the, the, whatever the dangerous catch or whatever is. And uh, he completed the grand first person to complete the grand slam of triathlon, which is you need in one year, you need to complete an, uh, an Ironman triathlon, which is 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike, and then a 26.2 mile run. And then you need to complete a double Ironman, a triple Ironman, a quadruple Ironman, and a quintuple Ironman. That's like, so the quintuple is like five Ironmans back to back to back. That's in one outing. And you need to do all that in a year. Uncle Ted did that in six months and he had uh, back surgery in the midst of that. Uh, wow. He ran across Siberia, you know, climbed, I don't know how many of the seven summits, but the guy is just absolutely incredible extraordinary and uncle ted is the reason i i think he's a big part of the reason why i took up extreme endurance athletics because 
he was the one who helped to give me faith and belief in myself that even though when I look in the mirror, I don't see anything, frankly, extraordinary or special. I'm just like an average guy like with skinny legs, you know, and but I realized there's something inside that's very special. And I I know Uncle Ted had it. Uh, I found it within myself. And what I do know now is I know each and every one of us have that. It's just sometimes it's hiding in it. Sometimes we got to dig a little deeper and and prod a little further in order to find it uh, if we want to do something totally outlandish, but we're all capable of it. And Uncle Ted's the one that set the example for me. And I was lucky to have him. I'm asking you about how did you get started and in your career and your and and your accomplishments and you keep coming back to these stories about these people that have had such a big impact on you but like you said they didn't come from anywhere special you know they were just everyday people in your life but put in an incredible amount of work made a decision to dig deep and and do great things whether it's being a mom supporting you or, you know, running for six days, I I think you are really illustrating a point, even by talking about, you know, your mother and your uncle about, I think, yourself as well as, as I, I think, from my understanding, you see yourself as the person who didn't necessarily come from anything special, but just dig, dug deep and found that whatever you want to name it within yourself that allowed you to achieve what you wanted to in life. I I guess that's the case. What I think that I've come to learn, and it's kind of interesting because I get asked to, you know, be on podcasts or something like that. And I I I don't understand it sometimes. I mean, I get like the feet of running across the US, you know, at like 50 plus miles a day, because that's a lot. But yeah, you know, I firmly believe anybody can do it because I know who I am. And I know I'm no great athletic talent. It just took a lot of work in running in preparation to do that. And there was so much time and effort and preparation put into that. And there were so many miles and there was so much pain endured. And there was, you know, just a ton of things that had to happen in order for that to take place. The fact is, we all have a body and just by virtue of us being human, we can do really extraordinary things. I mean, that to me, that was a calling as well. That was like something I really had to do, I think, in response to my depression. Like, I'm not sure if I mm -hmm. did not end up falling through in that calling, if I'd be talking to you here today. And uh, that's you know not an easy thing for me to to say, but we all get in difficult times and we all have times of adversity. And that's the thing that I've had to remind myself. And I try to remind, you know, audiences that I, I speak with in my keynotes is, you know, we all overcome adversity. And, you know, one person's blindness is another person's cancer, is another person's uh, getting laid off of their job, is another person's, you know, wh whatever it may, losing a dog. It, and these different struggles, ad adversity, are not to be compared with which one's worse or easier, because for each person, whatever that particular adversity is, it may be the most difficult thing that they're encountering up to that point in their life. And the fact is, if, we've, if we're all listening to this right now, and you and I are speaking, we've gotten to today. And 
in getting to today, we have encountered countless small little adversities and we've been able to overcome them to be able to get to today today they haven't stopped us you know we've gotten to today and that's something that i've always reminded myself especially when times get tough i'm like i've done this before i can do it again and i know that and i believe that with everything that i am i know that i can do that i believe in myself i believe in divinity i believe there's, there's something much bigger than me that's that's moving things along. And if you know my time comes, I'm going to be plucked out. But as long as I'm still here, I know I can keep doing it. We all have that capability. Many times it's our decision You know, when we get knocked down or when we fail or we feel experience pain or fear, whether we want to kind of press pause or you know check out of the game. And that's something that racing really has taught me. There's a great mentor in running that I have who ended up becoming a friend. His name's Marshall Ulrich. And uh, Marshall is the man when it comes to extreme endurance, you know, efforts. Like he has climbed the seven summits, like the highest peaks in the world. And he has ran across the mm -hmm. U.S. at a quicker pace than I have, you know, ran across uh, the Badwater Desert, self-supported. And just, I mean, I can go on and on about it. It's like my Uncle Ted. He actually knew my Uncle Ted back in the day. I didn't know. But Marshall's piece of advice to me has always been, Never take yourself out of the race, meaning if you're in a race and uh, you miss like a time cutoff, because for many of these races, there's a time standard. They don't want you out there for like five days doing 100 miles. Usually it's a 30 hour time cutoff for 100 miles. Even if you're in pain, you're vomiting, you know, you've fallen over, absent, you know, breaking a bone or something needs medical intervention. You don't take yourself out of a race. Uh, you never quit. There's a, there's a difference between being timed out and quitting. And oh. Marshall's piece of advice is so true. And when I've raced and I've been at that juncture to either take myself out or continue going, I have continued going. I did quit once and it haunted me until I was able to get back, you know, took two more years until I was able to finish that particular race. But what I've learned is when I get into the, worst parts when i think i'm at rock bottom in a race as long as i don't quit and i keep moving forward and i keep trying eventually i feel better and i can get back into a running state and that's something that you know it's a great metaphor for life the only thing we can count on in life is change if we're at our highest of highs everything's wonderful great everything's you know hit on all cylinders you can bet it's going to change sooner or later. You're going to come off that high and life's going to mellow out and you're, it's going to change and it's going to get a little tougher or on the antithesis. If you're in rock bottom right now and things are very tough, you can't see your way out. It looks like there's no hope. As long as you keep moving forward, don't quit. It's going to get better. The only thing you can count on is change. You know, I mean, it's, that's life. It's the constant wave. As long as we keep moving forward, just like in a race, as long as you keep moving, don't quit, don't pull yourself out, it's going to get better. You're going to be able to make a comeback. And that's true in life. I mean, I've been laid off from jobs before and I've, I thought, oh my gosh, how is this going to work? How am I going to be able to, you know, support my family to keep a roof over our head, that type of thing. You apply for jobs, you get rejected, rejected, go for interviews, go for interviews. Eventually you land a job and then you're back at it again. When you're in that position of being, you know, at your rock bottom or in that state, facing that state of adversity, 
there's a lot of pain and fear that goes along with that. And that can be paralyzing at times. And yeah, I have my own strategy for how I get past those points. You know, and everybody probably has their own coping strategy because they've gotten to today. I, I firmly do believe we are capable of absolutely everything and anything, each and every one of us. And I think we've demonstrated that ability. A lot of times we need the reminding that we do have that ability to overcome adversity, whatever we may be facing, because that's that's part of the journey of life. It's part of the beauty of life too. It makes it really cool and interesting and fun. And one thing that you're you're doing these days is well, you're you're coming on our show and and sharing that message, but you've also shared that message in the books that you've written and the keynotes that you do at various organizations. Can you share with us a little bit about how you wound up getting into that space where you were sharing your story with a wider audience? I never set out to become a keynote speaker or to write books. Uh, frankly, I couldn't read many books because I, I couldn't see. I think, you know, I joke with people sometimes like I've really read five books in my entire life cover to cover and I've written two now. Mm -hmm. Writing those books is uh, probably more arduous than running across the U.S. to me with, with how I operate. How all that began was uh, when, when I started out, I was trained and went to school to be a lawyer, found out I didn't like that and went to a business career. And I really liked that. I worked for General Electric for like 10 years. And I ended up uh, on an expatriate assignment, uh, working in the Caribbean, eventually led a, a smaller division of GE Capital in the Caribbean on the consumer finance side. And they, they were tremendous assignments, tremendous jobs. And I ended up stopping working pretty much because of my eyes. And I went into a severe depression, what I considered my rock bottom uh, in my lifetime as it pertained to me. And when I was in the midst of that severe depression was when I believe I received a calling from something larger than me to run across the US and I accepted that calling. And that, that's that's how it happened. I mean, it's it's crazy how it happened that I could be in a total severe depression, not even knowing how to go on with life or sometimes contemplating whether you know I wanted to. And at that point, make the decision to run across the U.S. and then do the training, figure out how to do it and actually do it in that state of mental health. What ended up happening was after I made it across the U.S., there was like some minor media coverage when I was going across. And afterward, I had gotten a call. I remember I, I finished, I got across the U.S. and I thought, if this is a calling, you know, maybe when I get to, you know, to the other coast, you know, God's going to like zap my eyes and I'll get like healed. And all the scientists can like, you know, look at my eyes and they have the tests showing that, you know, there was a problem with my eyes. Now they're healed. And, you know, maybe it's a evidence of, you know, whatever God, or I didn't know, you know, mm -hmm. like I've seen movies. I don't know. Well, I get to the coast and turns out like my eyes did not get zapped with healing powers. They actually got worse over the run. And my mom had crewed me that entire trip. And she drove us back to Denver three days later. I remember I got back to my home in Denver and I was like, I don't know how I'm going to survive it when the depression comes back. And I was just sitting in my house waiting for it to come back. And I was like, I don't know how I'm going to make it. And the phone rang and an organization asked me, they said, you know, we heard about your run. Would you mind coming and talking to our employees about your run? I was like, talk about what? Like, I, I didn't even understand. I didn't get it. 
And I went there and I kind of hacked my way through and kind of told the story and everybody clapped and they seemed like real happy. I was like, I didn't understand what just happened. And then I started receiving some more calls to, to go talk to like organizations and they were like, going to pay me. I was like, what do you mean? You're, you're going to pay me? And I, I, um, you know, I'd given, you know, talks to my employee base before and I'd, you know, talk to them about, okay, this is our, these are our metrics and our goals for the upcoming fiscal year. This is what we need to do to, to be able to attain that. These are going to be how we're going to grab the revenue. This is how we're going to manage the expense. This is what this means to you and me. And, you know, on three GE, let's go. But I'd, I'd never given like a, a motivational or an inspirational talk. I'd given kind of like a business leader talk. Well, I ended up thinking, I'm like, well, if I'm going to do this, you know, when I, in my days at GE, I'd been to keynote addresses where, you know, you hear about, you know, somebody who climbed K2 or, you know, uh, canoed across the Atlantic Ocean or whatever. And that apparently was what I was doing. But I wasn't, I wasn't there to just talk about some feat. What I wanted to do is if I was going to take people's valuable time, I wanted to share some things about life that I'd learned and obviously intertwine them into the story of running across the U.S., but really hit on some really important things that I think are critical for all of us. And that's what I ended up doing for the next six months. I, you know, lined up my kids' stuffed animals and I built a presentation and I practiced talking to those stuffed animals. Sometimes I'd sit my 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 dog and my cat down. Sometimes I'd make my three kids sit there. Sometimes it would just be a wall and I'd videotape myself and I built this deck. And after six months, I kind of came up with a a story and a talk that I think really adds value to people and it really challenges people to make them think and it does it with an entertaining story and but it also goes to the core of some of the most fundamental things that we all have to contemplate in this life and that's what gave rise to the keynote speaking and that's what I've been doing for the last seven years you know I after I was given some talks I remember after one of the talks one of the audience members came up to me and shook my hand and said, you know, that was really wonderful. You know, where can I get your book? And I was like, I don't have a book. Like every speaker's got a book. I was like, <laughs> I, I don't have a book. And that kind of got me thinking. <clears throat> and one of my kids was with me then and Sierra, my oldest, yeah, she could drive at the time and she would drive me to and fro some of these things when they were local. And I remember her telling me, she's like, dad, I didn't know all of that part of the story. Like she heard some of the talk. I was like, oh my gosh, my kids don't know how I got to this point. And I thought it was really important. Like some of the things we've talked about, like we all encounter adversity. We all get through adversity. We all have gotten to this point. We need to be reminded of some of those things. And that really began me thinking, I'm like, I'm going to write a journal for my kids. So they understand how I got to this point, how this, how and why this run happened. Cause maybe in their life, they're going to confront something very difficult and they're going to need to know how to get through it. And I, I could provide an example. So I ended up writing this journal to my kids and my oldest daughter read it. And when she read it, she's like, you got to publish that. And I'm like, mm -hmm. I'm not public. That's like a journal. That's like a diary, you know, to you kids <laughs> that like, after I die, you guys will read it. Like I'm not. And she's like, you got to do it, dad. You, you have to do it. And that's, that's where the first book came from. It was really a, a journal to my kids and it's called running into the dark. Then after I, you know, released that book, did more speaking, I kept getting a common question from audience members asking me, you know, how was it that you didn't quit? 
like how were you able to continue on through this story of like kind of like wave after wave of adversity and i think we all do it and as i thought deeper about that question you know it, there's a process for how we get things done and how we move through failure and accomplish things and that's true in our athletic pursuits in our career pursuits in our relational pursuits and you know it's the same process after years of thinking about this i drafted out my years at ge i always learned you know we, we process map things so people can understand kind of in a visual like one page graphic how does this get done and you know i i drew the thing up it really made sense to me as i talked more and more with people about it like oh my gosh it makes sense i was like I'm going to write a book. Like, I don't know why I wasn't taught this. Cause I think it's, I don't think I invented it. I don't think I discovered I, it. I think it's been around and part of our human experience for as long as humans have been around or things have been getting done. I wanted it to be put in place because I would have appreciated that. I know as a kid, or as I was setting out to, to do this very difficult task, you know, that was first impression for me or first attempt for me, because Part of succeeding, and that you know that second book is called the Success Cycle. But what I learned is part of succeeding is failing, and many times when we fail in the pursuit of success, we tend to give up. Well, we don't give up. That's just that's part of success. Albert Einstein's quote is saying, "Failure is success and progress." Thomas Edison said he failed fifteen thousand times to succeed once, and that's I think when you talk to people who accomplish really extraordinary things. They understand the value of failure. And that's part of this. That's part of the human experience, part of adversity and exercising resilience is when there's adversity, sometimes if it's easy adversity, maybe you overcome it on the first time. But if it's difficult or the first time you've encountered it, you may fail a few times in trying to overcome it. But if you exercise your resilience and go through this success cycle process, it happens. So that's I guess the long story of how this speaking thing and the author thing came about, it was never planned. Sometimes people ask me now, like, how can I career path into being a speaker or an author? I was like, uh, you know, I, I don't know that there's necessarily a career path. I don't know that there's training to do. I'm like, you know, go through something really difficult, figure your way mm -hmm. out of it, and then, you know, have a desire to share that knowledge with other people. And I think, you know, that's a really good way to to become a keynote speaker. Absolutely. I will admit, I myself sometimes wonder how how do people get into it? But to your point, it sounds like it's not something you set out to do, but at least when you were, you know, 14 years old, you didn't say to the doctor, no, I'm going to be a keynote speaker. Um, but it's something that by following your calling and your passions, people responded to that, right? It's not something where you were saying, oh, I have a, a story that I want to share with the world. And I mean, at some point, it, it that certainly seemed to be the case. It seems like where you are today, it just started by following your, your calling and your desire to achieve, to explore, to, to learn, to seek, to fail. And, and, and just like you said earlier, just to figure out what this life thing is all about. And through that, people came and wanted to learn more about your journey and and it seems to be inspiring people nowadays. I think one of the one of the things that I've learned about you know telling my life story in a public space is that it's not even the story like people you know there's data points that people may be intrigued by but 
I don't think that's really the draw. I think the real draw is that when I get up there, I tell that story with total authenticity and vulnerability and I relive it and it doesn't get any easier to go through it because there's some really hard parts to relive each time. And it takes a while to recover. You know, it's a performance kind of, but it's not a performance. It's it's getting up there and being absolutely raw and vulnerable. And that's where, that's what I think ends up being inspiring, Naomi. I believe all of us have an amazing story, but I don't think that we all share in a vulnerable and authentic way. And there's a bit of an art too, to summarize your entire life into 30 minutes and make sure there's some teaching points and you have it be captivating, take people on an emotional journey. That's, that's a lot, but that can be learned. But to tell it with total authenticity, and you know, there's no, when I'm on stage, there's no peeling back the layers of the onion. It's raw. You get to see and feel firsthand exactly what, what, happen and you're we're going on an emotional journey we're going to struggle together we're going to cheer together we're going to cry together you know we're going to hope together and it's the human experience and i think it's couched in a cool story of you know running from los angeles to new york at like two marathons a day you know getting chased by dogs and all kinds of other crazy stuff that happen but it's being real and i gotta tell you too those are the most uh, impactful conversations that I've ever had is when I get a chance to talk to a person or connect with a person when they're being their real and true self. And uh, whether that's a keynote person on a stage or a person you pass on the street, you know, those are very special moments in life. Those are moments that we remember. Those are moments that can have a real impact on us and on others. And, you know, I encourage everybody to get to yourself, be okay with yourself. You know, I, I got to tell you, for you know, an, an important piece of this story too is from age 14 to 44, I was in denial about my eyes. I had extreme shame about my eyesight. I wouldn't tell anybody that I couldn't see. Uh, that included at work. And there were times probably I was driving, I shouldn't have been driving. Uh, things that I was doing, I probably shouldn't have been doing, but I was too shameful about my condition to tell anybody else until it got to the point where I couldn't hide it anymore. And I was not being my authentic self. I was not being myself. I was being an imposter. And it's only within the last nine years have I really learned and embraced who I am. And that came at the cost of, you know, a lot, many things. And I went through a very, very difficult time in life in order to emerge the other side. It's almost like, you know, a catharsis, like a like a caterpillar going into the cocoon and then catharting out as a butterfly. Not that I'm a butterfly because uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I know I'm not the special look at everything. I don't have those beautiful <laughs> wings, but you know, to myself, I believe I've become you know, a better person, a better father, a better citizen in the community as a result of going through that very difficult and arduous time. And I do have true empathy and caring for for everything. And uh, it's, it's made my life, you know, better. And, and every day I'm grateful for just one more day. So I'm able to really love others. I'm really able to really love myself, which I don't think I could do for like the longest time. And part of that was because mm -hmm. of my eyesight. And I was resentful for having this disease for 
you know, blaming everything on everybody else and being a victim and having my own pity party to finally getting to a point where I can realize what I considered a curse is actually a real blessing in my life. And it's just part of my journey. And my journey is my journey, just like everybody has their journey. And it's okay because it's my journey. I'm not perfect, but you know, I'm, I'm trying to live life as fiercely as I can every day. That wraps up or, or summarizes a lot of really important points that you brought up today. Because I always like to ask as we get near the end of our conversation, you know, for people who are listening in and who are learning about your story and thinking, you know, well, maybe I'd like to start running or, you know, maybe I'd like to start sharing my story, whether it's talking to people or in a book. And I always like to ask my guests, you know, what advice do you have for them? Sounds like, you know, authenticity is a big takeaway that you'd like people to to keep in mind. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to add for our listeners who are maybe hearing our conversation and thinking, where, how can I get started or, or, you know, where could I go from here based on wherever I am in life, whether it's in a moment of success or maybe in a moment of difficulty? Yeah, well, I mean, it was an absolute pleasure to have you, Jason. I I won't speak for everybody else listening, but I'll just say that I I learned so much today. You know, I think I learned a lot about authenticity, about hard work, all the pillars, you know, and just, I think that regardless of where you are in your journey, you just have to take it one step at a time, one piece at a time and, and be kind to yourself, but don't give up. So thank you for, for sharing that message with us. And uh, I wish you all the best in whatever path you are taking in the future. Thanks, Naomi. I appreciate it. Have a wonderful day. Thanks. You too. Okay.